fresh every Tuesday for MSPs around the world. This is an MSP Marketing Podcast Special. Hello and welcome to another MSP Marketing Podcast Special. These are our most listened to episodes and no wonder we have an amazing guest for you today. I've got a guy from Australia who's going to tell us how he did it. Now, over the last 21 years, he's built up with his brother from scratch, a business that's now doing around about 7 million US dollars a year. It's an incredible story that he's got for us today. And he's also going to tell us how he's along the way become the owner of his own vendor, how he saw a problem and actually launched his own solution for that problem as well. It's a fascinating story. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the subject of today's very, very special episode. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Jamie Warner, and I'm the CEO of eNerds and Invarosoft. And we're going to talk about both of those businesses today. And I want to start, Jamie, with the eNerds story. And thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. eNerds has got to be one of the best names I've ever heard for an MSP. Did you come up with that yourself? Yeah. Well, look, uh, I started the MSP when I was 22. So at that point in time, eNerds as a name sounded pretty cool. I just finished a marketing degree and I was trying to think of something that would cut through the noise of all the sort of bland names that were out there. So uh E-Nerds is the one that we settled on and we've been living the nerd dream ever since. I love it. Absolutely love it. So you started the business, I think you said it was around 21 years ago. So I guess we'd look in around about the turn of the century. What was it that made you want to start a, I guess you wouldn't have called it an MSP back then. It would just be a, a tech support firm, wouldn't it? What was it that took you with your marketing degree and made you want to get into this world in the first place? Well, I was always struggling to figure out what I wanted to do. I guess the entrepreneurial flame was there through my parents. My parents actually ran a recruitment business and I was looking at how they got their IT support. Now, it seemed like it wasn't the best service experience. I had a friend that was quite technical and I thought, well, why don't I have a crack at starting an IT support business? And, and yes, they weren't called MSPs then, it was just IT support. So it was really to flex my entrepreneurial muscle of wanting to do my own thing. It started from there. And does your brother have a tech background? So well, he didn't either. And so when I first started, he was still at university and had about six months to go. So eventually he came on board after he finished uni and said to me, well, I don't really even like business or marketing, even though he just completed the same degree and started to become the, the head technical person of the business and, and is now our CIO. So really probably starting an MSP with not a lot of experience and very different from most of the MSPs that are out there that are fundamentally started by a technical person. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's it's really rare to talk to the owner of an MSP who isn't a technician. And do you, I mean, obviously you've been doing this for 21 years. So through the power of osmosis, that, that technology has, has you know, rubbed off on you, hasn't it? You, you've got that, that technology knowledge now. But in those first few years, did you find that it held you back or did you find that it actually gave you an advantage over your more technical-based competitors? I always liked technology. So talking about in those days, you know, servers with hot swap drives and, and power supplies and UPSs, all that sort of stuff. I, I didn't know most of it. So I had to learn through osmosis, learn through the process. I mean, I would sit there in sales meetings and people would talk to me about all this technology that they wanted us to support. And I just basically said yes to everything and then would come back and have to Google or 
ask somebody what they were actually talking about. So it was a bit weird. And the reality is you do obviously get better at selling if you know what you're talking about. But it just goes to show that really it's not about you. It's about the customer. And if you, you keep saying yes to everything or acknowledge and listen, um, then you can actually get a certain distance ahead. And, and at that point, you do need to learn and become a good consultant. So definitely became a great consultant in that space. And that's when the business really started to go places. But was it an advantage? I think it is an advantage to be non-technical because I was never in it. I could never be in it. And if you're not in it, you're generally working on it. And so I was by default always thinking sales and growth. And that's probably the small advantage I had. So let me just ask a, a couple of practical questions on that one, Jamie. So there you are starting this business from scratch. You don't do tech stuff. Your business partner, your brother doesn't do tech stuff. How did you actually win your first couple of clients and service them? If you recall, he was at university for the first six months. So I did have uh, technical people around me on an ad hoc basis. And around the time that Tristan, my brother, came on board, I did hire someone that I always wanted to work with. I knew him prior to starting the business. He was one year older, but he'd been working in IT. So that he's 23, I'm 22. And he'd been working since he was 17. So he had quite a big track record, knew everything about everything SMB, IT related, networking, all that sort of stuff. And so I did get him on board. And pretty much all the money of the company went to paying this, this guy's wage. So at that point in time, he became the anchor of the business not long after my brother started. And that's who mentored my brother. So he stayed for a couple of years. And through that relationship, my brother was able to, to harness and, and learn his skills. But let's be honest, I would send out my brother on jobs and he'd be like, but I don't know how to do it. And I said, you'll be fine. It's fine. You'll figure it out. Just just go on the internet and search it. And so I'd be throwing him in the deep end. Really, he, he copped the, the hardest part of that journey in the early days, I have to say, because um, maybe being ignorant and young and just trusting your older brother, he'd go out and have a crack. Now, it's jumping in the fire, obviously, but he was able to learn fairly quickly. And, and it wasn't a long time he had to do that. When this other chap came on board, that's when his skill set started to really accelerate. And so we built the early part of that business around that particular first employee. That's so funny. I can imagine you just, just sending your brother out with the, I guess it would be a PDA back then, wouldn't it? And say, just, just go and Google it. It'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I don't even know if Google was really being used then, quite frankly. It was um, it was probably AltaVista or something. Yeah, yeah. But you can't <laughs> use that as a verb, can you? Just AltaVista Alta it. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. So was the, was the goal always for you to build up something big? Because as we said, you know, at the start of the podcast, you're doing, a, I think it's 9 million uh, Australian dollars, which is around about um, 7 million US dollars. So it's a, a fairly sizable operation. Was, was that the goal? Did you always want to build something that was going to stand on its own two feet and, and you know, have, a, have a certain impact? Or were you just making it up as you went along? Yeah, I mean, you'd think I'd have a very strong plan after doing a business degree. It was probably making it up as we went along, to be honest. Didn't really know what I was getting into. Didn't understand the model. What did I want to do as a vision? I don't think vision was that clear. We got clearer in the future and we engaged coaches and all those sorts of things. Probably five, six, seven years into it, we started to, to be a little clearer. But at the start, it was really just trying to have a business, I think, was the key. And, you know, the, the funny thing is that the one critical decision I think I made well at the start was to identify that an ad hoc approach was not going to be a sustainable business model. I actually used my father to 
get a quote from the really, really big IT support company in, in Australia at the time and realized that they were actually charging monthly fees for their services. And for a while, I was thinking, I just don't know how you're supposed to sell block hours and support packs. And then all your costs are monthly wages and rent and electricity, all this sort of stuff. It just seemed a complete disconnect between the two things, especially when the ad hoc revenue wasn't very much on an average basis. And you couldn't force people to use these these packs of time. So adjusting it to a monthly model really set us away. And that probably gave me a better insight into the vision of what we could build. Prior to that, I was a bit circling going, well, I don't know how what I'm able to do here. And I'm a pretty simple person in terms of the way I think about things. And once I realized it's all about monthly, I went, oh, okay, well, if I just sign up X dollars a month in monthly support, then I can cover all that cost and I can keep building. And I remember when we had our first sort of $300 a month, I was like, wow, someone's paying us $300 a month. The other chap I had, by the way, who had never seen that model before was like, nah, that'll never work. And I said, well, it better bloody work because if it doesn't, I can't see where this business is going. So it worked and, and I got $1,000 a month. Then I went, wow, if we can get $1,000 a month, maybe I can get to $10,000 a month. Then we eventually hit 10. And now all these years later, we're actually at about $250,000 a month in that monthly support. So that's the metric that I've always been focused on. And it enables you to have a better vision about what you want to build. And interestingly, if you fast forwarded 10 years, we were very much in it. Like most of the MSPs you see today, we were absolutely getting flogged around 2008, 2009. And I remember sitting there with my brother saying, look, I don't know if we're ever going to make squillions out of this thing because it's clearly taking a while to grow. And we, we, we were starting to scale. We went from 900K to 1.6 to sort of 2.1 to 3 million, all in a space of three years, which, you know, it's not rocket ship compared to other businesses. But as an MSP, it wasn't too bad, especially organically. And so we were getting busy, but we were busy, like personally busy. And so the vision changed to being, look, okay, if, if we're not going to make squillions, let's try and build something that actually doesn't require our effort and time. And so the vision, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, was very much to build uh, an asset that you have as opposed to a job that you have. So it's the whole e-myth thing. We sort of, I started to break out of that concept of seeing the business as my job and seeing the business as an asset that I just want to run. And so because I had that mindset, it started to happen. It's like the law of attraction. You, you tend to just start to do the things to, to, to get there. And, that, and that's obviously where we've got now. So it's evolved. And, and interestingly, a lot of MSPs are like, oh, I don't want to get bigger. I don't want to do that. There's more money and it is easier. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It actually gets easier as you get bigger. Oh, I, com I completely agree with you, having done it a couple of times, not quite to the scale at which, at which you've done it, Jamie, but having done it with a couple of businesses, you know, it's it's so much easier when you don't have to be involved with something yourself. I think the thing that many MSP owners struggle with is how to get started on that. So you obviously had made that big mental decision, right, this is what we're going to do. This is, this is you know, we want the business that's going to thrive without us having to be here. So we've got the choice of whether to be here or not. But from a practical point of view, how did you actually get started on that? If I was to, to give one piece of advice, it's, it, it is to have a sales growth mindset, first and foremost, which I can completely appreciate is difficult if you're technical, because virtually everything you do can suck you back into the business. So, you know, a customer has a technical, something's burning, an S1, a severity one issue, or it could be need to get back to them with, with an advisory 
quote uh, or whatever it happens to be. It's just it's so easy to just get sucked in because we're basically professional services businesses just in technology. And therefore, mindset-wise, I would put it to the market that 95% of them just sit there thinking about servicing client rather than growing their business. They're thinking job, not asset. And so trying to get that through your head is probably the first thing. And if you're going to be sales and growth focus, you still need to be focused on operations and all that sort of stuff. But maybe if I could metaphorically explain it, that growth and sales mindset-wise should be the platform by which everything's based on, not technically servicing your clients. Because if you have the basis of that, and that's your underlying primary goal, then you will grow. If your underlying primary goal is to do technical stuff and keep changing your stack and worrying about vendors, then that's what you'll be good at and you won't be good at growth. And so because my mindset could only be that of sales and growth because I'm not technical in that way, then obviously you start to do the things over and over to to grow and succeed. And so, you know, very early on, we were trying to be more efficient around how we sell even just at the procurement level, found out that there were quoting tools that could enable you to speed up that whole process. And through pure sales efficiency alone of being able to pump quotes out faster, order things faster, that's when we grew from 900K to 1.6 million in one year. Didn't sign up any more clients ordinarily. We just were faster at getting through those quotes. And I made a particular effort personally to do that. Now at our size, I have all these people that do the roles that I used to do. And so on the procurement side, that's where the efficiency comes. But in terms of the growth side, it was always a focus of working on my support proposal, on, on how I present myself, on how I can sign up new business. That's all I cared about. And once I realized, as I said earlier, the whole monthly model of signing up support deals, if it's not already abundantly clear to those that are listening, your support deals are the most profitable line item in your business. It is literally the concrete slab you build your business on. Without it, you don't grow. You just don't grow and you're not profitable. So the only metric, the only metric you should be caring about is signing up more support deals than you lose every year and actually having a sales target taking into consideration your churn. I keep banging on about this and it is abundantly clear to me that there seems to be a lack of understanding of that core metric. There is no central spreadsheet that most MSPs use to track it. Not that we did in the early days. I didn't have a spreadsheet, but I, I was definitely trying to hit a target of new business every year. And that is all that building an MSP is, signing up more support deals than you lose. It's not about selling more internet and selling more phone and selling more Office 365, all of that stuff is low margin. To me, in my simple brain, that's your with fries with that. You just want to sell the hamburger, which is your support deals. If you sign more support deals than you lose every year and you have a pretty good gap between them, dollar-wise, I mean, not badge-wise, you will grow your MSP. If you don't focus on it, you won't do it and you won't grow. And so when I go to bed at night and I drive home in my car, the only thing that relates to e-nerds that I really care about at the top level, I care about all the other stuff, don't get me wrong, but as I said before, the platform by which all my decisions are made on is to sign up more deals. If you do that, you will always have a thriving and growing business. It may not be a rocket ship business, but if you bludgeon your way there like we've done over 21 years, it's always an upward curve going to the right. And that is probably the biggest thing you need to get in your mind is signing up more support deals than you lose and having a growth and sales mindset.
I love this. However, let me throw you the most common objection I hear when I talk about stuff like that. And it is that, hey, it's all very well being focused just on sales and adding new clients. But if I don't look after the existing clients, they're not going to stay very long. So I can't do both things. I can't look after the existing clients and go looking for new clients. Now, obviously, you 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 said today, Jamie, you've got lots of people to go and get new clients for you and look after your existing clients. But back when you were a lot smaller, how did you manage that? Because the, those are conflicting demands, aren't they? To try, you know, retention is, is as much an important part of that as is signing new clients. Think about it this way. A, a great business coach explained the time that you spend in a business in, a, in colors. And they talk about sales activity and that type of thing is blue time. And they talk about operational stuff and infrastructure stuff as red time. And then they talk about the strategic thinking and strategic stuff you might be doing as black. And so for those that are listening, have a wee think about how much time you spend in the blue sales and how much time you spend in the infrastructure and operational side. And so all I'm saying is, is that if, if as a percentage, you spent 60 to 70% in blue and 30% in red, because it's not as if we're having a higher staff every month, these businesses are very slow. Worrying about stack and worrying about org structure is something that you can just deal with in the 30% time because that's all you really need to spend on it. But you do need to spend the time on it. You do. And I love it. I love org structure. And we're constantly changing our org structure to cope with demands. The problem with an MSP is it's a very complicated business to run. And as you scale, it's got to keep changing. I mean, we went from an engineer artesian style where every engineer had an allocation of clients that started to fail then we centralized to a service desk and had that as the primary focus and we've had to adjust and improve that whole process like it's just endless what you have to keep doing to iterate and change as you grow and get bigger these days we have you know three account managers in the early days it was just me i guess pseudo being an account manager and so you go through all these different changes and i really love that part of the business but that's when you need to focus on it that's not like 90% 90% of the time. You don't spend 70% of your time in the red time. That's crazy. It's it's you fix it, you service clients, then you grow, and then the wheels fall off a little bit and you fix it again. But it's not like you have to constantly keep fixing it. So if you're in this mindset of, oh, but I've got to do that. Yeah, you do have to do that, but do that when you need to do that. And I would put it to you and challenge everyone's thoughts that that is not the majority of the time you should be worrying about because the growth of this business is so slow. My wife's business is in retail. And she's doubled her revenue in a year and from a really high revenue number. And so she's going from like 60, 70 staff to 150 staff in a year. Imagine doing that. Obviously, you're going to probably spend a bit more time in red when that's happening. But in our type of world, let's be honest, half these MSPs will be going from 500 grand to then maybe 700 grand, maybe then to 900, maybe to 1.2. That's not rocket ship growth. You might have to hire one or two people. Like, come on. So, If that's the challenge you're thinking, think about it in color. Think about it in that if you really want to grow, if that's what you want, you want independence and all that sort of stuff, start to move the blue time, your sales and marketing time and that sort of thing. And it's not just new business, it's your procurement side as well. That's a big part of growing an MSV. Have that as being more like at least 50%, 50, 60, 70% of the time. Just think of that and you will grow. It's amazing. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard if you're technical because you cannot help yourself. You want to get stuck in. That is the way your brain works. I get it. But if you want change, you've got to start thinking a different way. Otherwise, it's it's the definition of insanity, trying to 
you know, or a golf swing. I mean, I've tried to do it with a golf swing where you keep changing the bloody swing. You think you're changing the swing. You're like, no, I'm changing it. And when you look at yourself in a video going, mm, no, that looks kind of similar and no wonder the result's the same. So you really have to make a concerted effort to change the mindset and boom. And there's no surprise that when you speak to MSPs that are doing really well, they've got a fairly strong sales mindset. But I like to keep things simple because it's too it's too complicated. Just think of signing up more support deals than you lose every year and try and sell as much stuff to the existing clients you have. Simple. Okay, let's look at new client acquisitions. So what are you doing now and what have you done over the years that absolutely works the best for you? There's two parts to that. And the second part, I don't think gets spoken about enough. The first part, of course, is to generate leads. And the second part is conversion. So let's talk about generating leads. There's lots of ways of generating leads. And there's a guy called Paul Green that's really great at helping you generate leads. So I advise you have a think about that. Um, but aside from that, you've got to have the concept and, and of your oil wells or the, the ways in which you can generate leads. And you've got to find what works for you. What's worked for us has obviously been referrals. Everybody has referrals. If you provide an outstanding service and customer experience, which is the whole Envirosoft platform that also doesn't get talked about enough, if you have a great customer experience, then you will get more referrals. And the funny thing is, as you grow, you've got more clients, you've got more end users, and end users are the ones, by the way, that actually give you a lot of referrals because if you're delivering great customer experience with great tech, you know, client portals and apps and those sorts of things, they go to the next client and then they go, what, I'm an email again and I have to go off a sticker and a mouse pad? That is a black and white experience difference and those are the times that you get referrals. But it is a multiplier. The bigger you get, the more referrals you get. You've just got more relationships out there with vendors and all these sorts of things. So referrals is always going to be in a professional services relationship type business, your biggest, easiest oil well to, to nurture. The next one for us has been AdWords. I'm a massive fan of it and I'll explain to you why it works. The reason is, is because when a customer is looking for a new partner, they've probably given their existing partner a few goes before they finally get the shits and go, right, I want to change. And they look around to each other and they say, John, do you know anyone? Uh, I may know one person. Great. There's one. All right. Well, get, we need to see three. So can you go on Google and find the other? So then they Google it, IT support London or New York or LA, or whatever. And they bring up a list. That is the point is that Google and the reason why they have billions upon billions of upon billions of cash in the bank is because they worked out that the best advertising ever is when someone searches for something, they find that something instantaneously. And so if you're not in AdWords, you're not in the game because it is the new yellow pages and it is where customers go to search for things. And so you want to obviously have your ads there and that's how you'll get those leads. And so that's worked really well for us. It's not a, it's not a rocket ship thing, but you've got to think more over a whole year. So if you were spending $1,000 a month on AdWords and by the end of the year, you signed up three deals worth $5,000 a month, you're now $4,000 a month ahead. And then the next year, your spend is still one. You sign up maybe 10 grand that year. So now you're at 14, uh, 15 grand and you're 14 grand ahead. And that's pretty much how it works. And so it's one of those set and forget things that you can just keep cranking. You have your remarketing going. So when people kind of are traversing around the internet, they start seeing your ad saying, oh, you're still looking, you're still looking for an IT partner. 
it's just an absolute gimme in this day and age. And so I've also tried all the other oil wells of how to do it, and they do work. They do work. It requires a consistent effort to do it. But the two biggest ones by far uh, are your referrals and, and AdWords. And so I started doing AdWords way back in 2009. And lo and behold, we kept signing up more deals than we lost every year, and we kept growing the business. So yeah, I think it's about finding an oil well that is that suits you and something that's uh, repeatable and something that you're willing to give it a long period of time to do. And so for me, those are those are probably my big tips around growth. I, I completely agree with you with with AdWords in theory. The theory being that, and, and, and it's what AdWords was ten years ago, isn't it? Probably when you first got started, you someone searched for something, you could pay to put your message above other people's messages and and at as its basis that's what makes adwords beautiful i think some of the issues that some msps run into these days when they try adwords is because there's now a restricted number of messages you know, there's a, what is it, three three adverts. Up, and I, I'm not a technical expert at AdWords. I never claim to be and never will do because I think you, you, you need to be, you need to get your hands dirty with something like this. But you've got a limited number of messages. And in big markets, like you mentioned, you know, IT support, LA, Los Angeles, you know, where there are probably... 500 to 1,000 MSPs, you know, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Los Angeles is just an insanely large area with an insanely large number of, of, of MSPs there. So in, in situations like that, is it still possible to win at AdWords or is it simply a case of you just have to spend more than your competitors? Firstly, I would say 5% of MSPs are doing this. You can chop out most of those competitors you're, you're talking about. Secondly, the best scenario to be in is in a city like LA, which Sydney is uh, in Australia is um, the same landmass area as in LA, if not bigger. It's a massive city, Sydney, but it's only got about 5 million people, but it's still a big number. I would be licking my lips if I lived there because there's just more people searching. The problem actually happens when, and most MSPs are in smaller townships and towns and counties and sub, you know, and that type of thing. And, and so, therefore, they have to kind of cast a wider net around the townships around them to try and get the, the search volume. Because this is the problem with B2B. And this is a double-edged sword of people searching. The reason why most MSPs are the size they are is because we are relationship businesses. And relationship businesses don't scale very well. The reason they don't scale very well is because people are quite loyal at their relationships. And they will give people a go. It's why we have amazing retention. It's why the MSP model is just pretty much thrive. Well, it didn't thrive, but it, it survived very well for the most part, most people, through COVID. Some struggled, I know that. But generally speaking, an annuity model like this is, is pretty stable because they don't churn. But if they're not churning, it means it's hard to sign them up. And if they're not constantly changing their IT partners all the time, that means the search volume on AdWords isn't actually that high. Right, So even now, in a city of 5 million people, I only get between zero and three leads a month. It's never been more than that because there just isn't that many people searching. But the fact still remains that when they are searching, you need to be there. And if you understand the concept, like there's a concept in, in SaaS metrics called unit economics, which I wish had that spoken about early on. But when I learn about unit economics, which talks about your ARR, your MRR, so monthly reoccurring revenue, annual reoccurring revenue, your lifetime value, your churn, these are all metrics of a SaaS business because it's all about monthly subscriptions fundamentally or you know billing annually, whatever. What is the difference between that and an MSP? Absolutely none. 
And so you, if you understand lifetime value, you understand that, and I bet you a million dollars that most people listening to this will have a, a lifetime value of maybe five years or 60 months for a deal. So even if the, the rates to get in that top three of the ranking gets higher and higher and higher, and mine's close to $30, who cares? You, you can cap your monthly anyway on, on AdWords. So if you want to spend 500 or 1,000 or two grand, whatever. But the reality is I've got mine set at like $8,000 a month, maybe 10. It's been like that for a decade, but I only ever spend one or two because there's only so many people searching. So therefore, to get at the top of the list should be your main goal. And if you're signing up deals of a lifetime value, let's say your average deal is a thousand pounds a month or a thousand US dollars a month, then you've made $60,000 when you sign up that deal. So who cares whether you give away or it costs you even five grand to get that deal? It doesn't really matter in the context of lifetime value. And so that's a, that's a concept I've written about years ago. I know MSPs get it, but I don't know if they really, really get it and really actually focus on that. AdWords is an absolute gimme. And if you're not doing it, you're not in the game. You only thing that I can see where it, it, it doesn't work is if your search volume area, which is a problem, so I'm not sure what the solution is to that, is so low. So if you are in a, in a small townships and you can't do the wider area, if, it, if it's quite a low population, then it is a bit of a struggle. That's probably the, the, the one thing I've noted that can thwart the AdWords, but it's absolutely worth giving it a go. It's absolutely worth casting a wider net and seeing if you can get it going because you only need two or three conversions a year for you to go, yep, worth every penny. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, oh, it makes perfect sense. It really does. You're saying it's it's a mindset thing as much as it's a, a spending thing. Okay. Before we move on to conversions, very, very briefly want to touch on referrals. You're right. It's a great source of new clients for every MSP. Jamie, in your business, do you have a formal referral scheme or do you just wait for happy clients to just refer you to their friends because they, they know you're good? I've tried formal. And the problem is when it's formal, it any sort of marketing, like for example, having banner ads in your email saying, hey, refer me when you're ready, it, it, it turns into white noise. And so they don't care. Like I was giving away trips overseas and whatever, like, but it didn't really make much of a difference. And so I think if you just do a good job, you know, people will refer you. In saying that, putting some structure around it is, is always the holy grail. The problem is, is that it's not as if people stand around a barbecue talking about their IT support partner or that at any point in time would know someone looking for IT support. I mean, they're all focused on being lawyers and accountants and just doing their jobs, right? So it's not an easy thing to do. Where I feel like we could go with it is getting a much better linkage. And some of the CSAT tools are doing this. We want to build it into our platform so it does a better job of it. I just think this could be the, the key. When someone's giving you a nine out of 10 experience, immediately ask them to post something or if you can automate the process post something on social. These are the little things you could probably do. But outside of that, it really comes down to just doing a great job and those referrals come when they come. If someone could tell me how to structure it and make sure you could do it, then I'd be all ears because of the lack of knowledge of the other person. It's like, oh, well, I'd love to refer you, but I just don't know anyone that's looking. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it, it, so it's, it's not that easy. And that's why maybe linking it with social these days and having an automated process like striking when the iron's hot. So someone's giving you a nine or 10 out of 10. It's like, whoa, let's, let's try and harness that happy energy into something that might generate a referral or at least be good from a promotional perspective. So tricky one. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that one. 
Well, I, I um, defer to a guy called Steve Gordon on this, who wrote a book called Unstoppable Referrals. It's a great book. What Steve Gordon says is is pretty much what you said there, which is be, referrals are unnatural. People don't, you know, sit around, or most people don't sit around saying, "How can I, how can I refer my suppliers?" Um, and there's also what he describes as a social risk of referrals. So if I say to everyone, "Oh, Jamie's business is brilliant," you know, they've been looking after us for five years. Go and have a chat with them. And when someone's in touch with your business, for whatever reason, they don't quite have the experience they were they were looking for, and we all have days where the wrong person picks up the phone at the you know at the wrong time. His argument is that if if that happens, it becomes a, a social risk on me, the referrer, and it's almost a, a social embarrassment for me. Plus, people refer the wrong way. <laughs> you know, they'll say, and this perhaps wouldn't be applicable to a business your size, Jamie, but to a smaller business, you know, oh, my, my IT guy Dave's brilliant. You know, I can ring him at 10 p.m. on a Sunday when my home printer's not working, and he doesn't mind that. And not, not, nobody wants that referral. But <laughs> for, for the clients, they, they think, because actually they were Dave's first client, and 10 years ago they could do that, and they think they can still do it now. So, yeah, Unstoppable Referrals by Steve Gordon is, is definitely worth a look. Um, Jamie, let's move on to conversions because I think you were absolutely spot on earlier when you said there is there is two parts to winning new clients. There's generating leads and there's then converting them into clients. Yes, it is an area that sadly just doesn't get talked about enough, I have to say. And it's a now that I'm learning more about my own industry, because I was in a bubble for quite some time prior to starting Envirosoft, didn't really associate with a lot of MSPs and didn't know what everyone was doing. And I didn't even know that our business had actually got a wee bit bigger than most. I had no idea. So it was all a bit of a shock in that sense of, of learning. And one of the things, as I told you very early on, I was always about the proposal, always about the proposal. How could I make the proposal better and better and better? And when I finally hired a dedicated GM of sales to basically take care of new business and the advisory part of what we sell to clients, I was able to move to a more sales director type role. And that is probably just a mini gold nugget there, by the way, is that, uh, and I've spoken about this a lot, is the fact that if you do hire a salesperson, you become the sales director. They are there to convert deals, but they need a sales playbook that you generate to make their life easier, giving them devices, giving them the tools that they can use to be awesome at what they do. It is not their job to dream up all that sort of stuff. They are there to execute and be your proxy in that sense. So in that frame of mind, I spend even more time on our support proposal, on the layout of the proposal, on the order by which you say things in the proposal, talking about the why, talking about the how, the whole Simon Sinek thing we put into the proposal. And I believe that the way you present is just the biggest part of conversion. So I, I have presentations like this. In the, If you're a tech tribe person, you, you can go and have a look at this. The mistakes people make are not spending any time on the proposal, only talking about the what, the what you do. I'm really good at Microsoft and I'm really good at Azure and I'm super cool at security. Who cares? Because remember, when the customer was looking for a new partner, did they sit in the room saying, hey, guys, I think we need another security solution? No, they're looking for a partner. And because they're looking for a new partner, your proposal must be more around that. Why are you the best partner for them? How you present, how you lay out that proposal, all these sorts of things are important. So you don't want to speak about the what. You want to actually talk about the why first. You want to actually lay out your pricing in a way which is easily to consume. These are all parts of it. You want to bind it, put it in a folder, present well. You want to dress up to mirror the person you're selling to. If you're selling to a lawyer, probably wear a suit. 
If you're selling to a nonprofit, you can be more casual. You don't just rock up in a polo to every meeting. You've got to dress up and down accordingly. You know, the sales process itself, when you get a lead, do you book it in straight away? Most of the other mistakes people make is they rush out and want to do an audit first. In my view, remember, this is just my view of the world, but I still think it's wrong. They don't want you to do an audit. They want to find out whether you're going to be the right partner. You still may have to do an audit, but do that second and then have another meeting. So now you've got two meetings with them. You've got two chances to build relationship with them. The other thing they'll do is they'll put stack in their good, better, best support plans. If you do that, you are now complicating a relationship discussion with a solution discussion. And that's going to slow down the sales meeting because you're not only talking about partnership, you're talking about widgets and, and stuff that they would buy. What a waste of time. Plus, it inflates your price. It's the silliest thing I've ever seen. And I didn't realize that they've all been coached to do it. It's the wrong way to do it. You can do it that way, but it's all about increasing conversion. You can actually, and I just want to say this, you can sell whichever way you want. Most referrals you get, you could turn up with an A4 piece of paper and probably sign up the client because it's a referral. But it's all about increasing the number of conversion you get from the deals, right? So you've got to do all the one percenters to increase conversion. And I believe by putting stack in your packages, it slows the deal down. Then I've heard this concept that you should only have one package, going back to one. Buying psychology proves that if you have options, people choose to buy. If you give them one option, it is a yes or no proposition. When it's a yes or no proposition, that's why they'll go running away and hiding. Talking about how you present your solutions in your proposal, like your support proposal. This is why in Virusoft, we've built a VCAO platform that enables you to also use Good, Better, Best because we've been doing that for 11 years in a, in a Word document. And it works a treat because clients go, oh, that's great. You're going to come back with options. I'm going to be able to build my solution. Perfect. I love it. They lap it up. It's why we sell so much. Think about all the little one percenters. Do you have a page in your proposal that explains like what engagement looks like? Do you... Get them in the mindset of actually having bought from you. You don't want to just go, here's the stuff I do. Are you interested? No. Hey, this is what it's going to look like. When you come on board, we're going to do this. You just have to sign the paper. We're going to go through this 27-step process, and we're going to take care of everything. And hey, look at this cartoon video we've got that we're going to show. We're going to meet your staff, but we're also going to train them. Look at our amazing client portal and IT support apps that your clients get. How amazing is that? You have to be focused on your proposal and on conversion. You have to be a purple cow. Read the book by Seth Godin. You cannot rock up into these meetings and expect you're going to differentiate with a ho-hum, this is what I do approach and spending little to no effort on how you present your services to, to a customer. It ain't going to happen. And it is the biggest mistake I see MSPs make is they spend all their time worrying about leads and virtually no time, no blue time, remember the blue time, on the proposal. It is mind-boggling. It's the thing you've got to focus on. So there's my diatribe about conversion. And I guess maybe the final comment here is that if you're converting, most people convert in sales somewhere between 10 and 30%. We convert at 47%. So if you can actually go, all right, well, normally I'm winning one deal out of four and you can pump it up closer to two or 1.8, you've almost doubled up your growth just by improving your way that you present yourself. Makes perfect sense. Same amount of work, double the results. 
Who doesn't want that? Um, Jamie, you've mentioned Invorisoft. I think it's about 74 times uh, so far <laughs> on, the, on the podcast. You've definitely, you definitely win the award for, uh, for most subtle plugs, which is pretty good. I'm, I'm looking at your website now for Invorisoft. It looks amazing. It's, a, uh, it's customer experience software, and I, I, I can see that I'm, I'm not giving it justice just by explaining it as that. And I'm going to ask you to explain exactly what it is in a little while. First of all, you are an MSP owner um, and, and we've, we've heard you know your story and how you, you, you work your way through. What was the, the problem or the want or the need that led to you creating what has gone on to become this software that you now sell to other MSPs? There was a day in 2009 where I was sitting in our boardroom with a quote for 2,000 mouse pads thinking to myself, firstly, far out, they're a dollar each. That's expensive, probably like 10 cents in the US, but in Australia, everything's expensive, a dollar each for a mouse pad. Then I thought, are we seriously still at mouse pads? And what I was trying to do was have our brand, because we're supposed to be their IT team, across all the devices that we manage so that the users can easily contact us, call us, email us, and that sort of thing. So that was one of the problems I had. The other problem I had at the time, so it was a customer experience problem in that sense. And the other uh, problem I had was more around productivity. We were getting a lot of emails with the incorrect ticket information in it. And if you understand a ticketing system, it's all about ticket type, subtype, putting workflows into route tickets to where they need to be. We do auto allocation and load balancing of tickets. So getting the right information means you don't have to triage tickets. And we were getting a lot of phone calls unnecessarily for things like change requests, which is a waste of everybody's time. They should just be logged. So I sat there thinking to myself, this is 2009. So the iPhone's just come out a few years in. Apps are now becoming more you know, apparent and it's this whole app economy starting. I thought, surely we could do a digital mouse pad is what I was thinking. That's where the idea started going, well, if I put this app, if we build something that's basically a much better, like our own app across all these devices, would that make it easier for them to log tickets and so on? And so we built it out to do that. Would it mean, you know, I don't have to do the mouse pads anymore and it, it won't get old and tired and thrown out? And so we decided to do that. And I wish I was smart, but it actually turned out, I wasn't thinking that right at the start, but as we were building it, I realized, oh my God, this is going to be a massive purple cow when we're selling. And I was right. It absolutely is because it's about the only thing the customer gets when you're pitching to them. Everything else is behind the scenes. Their infrastructure sits in the corner or in the cloud. You know, they, they just basically get a voice at the other end of the phone, which is the incumbent way of doing it, or the odd dude turning up in a polo, or the odd consultant rocking up in a suit. So there's not a lot that they actually get on day one. And again, I wish I'd actually realized that would be the case, but it, it was something we quickly then incorporated into that whole support proposal side because we realized, gee, this is a visible thing they, they would use every day. And so that's where it all started. And so what did you put together? What was the, the sort of the first iteration of that? And, and what, was the, what was the moment that you realized, this isn't just something we could use in-house, we could actually sell this to other MSPs? So, that, so by 2010, we'd built this hard-coded app. And we went through a couple of designs and we settled on one that actually looks more like the mail client of an iPhone. If you look at your the, the native mail client and the way it's laid out, we realized, okay, well, let's, let's have a crack at using that sort of button arrow style. I personally called up 10 clients and said, look, we're going to phase out support at, you don't give us the right information. Because of that, we play this ping pong match between us to, to confirm what you were talking about. I'm going to give you an app. 
It's just accessed off your desktop, easy peasy, and we'll guide you just through a couple of drop downs. You'll be able to take screen capture. We'll get device diagnostics. We'll have forms for you to fill in and approvals, all this sort of stuff in there, make your life easier. And the client's like, oh, sure. If it means faster, great. Sounds good. Zero pushback. So we rolled it out to just these test people. They went, oh my God, this is amazing. Roll it out to everybody else. And since day one, the utilization has been out of control. And we get over 100 tickets a day. We get 50 to 60% through the app. And so at that point, after a few years of this, I was like, this is really good. And I, I don't know why the PSAs haven't built something like this. And I thought, well, should we commercialize it? So I went through a big decision-making process and took me a year to make the decision to do it because I felt like if I was going to do it, I wanted to give it a good old crack and build something quite significant. And so we decided to commercialize it. It's now patented technology. And so we decided to commercialize in 14, started building in 15 and launched in 17. And since then, it's gone through a massive evolution. It's been fascinating. The app itself has always been a hit for end users. But the reality is MSPs didn't quite get it and um, didn't almost believe that customers would love it. So unfortunately, because most MSPs think it from themselves outwardly rather than from a customer backwards, which I think is also a mistake and mindset wise, it didn't really have the biggest hit. What started to really get the momentum was when the market spoke and they said, no, we want a client portal. We want Office 365 integration and a client portal over and above just the app itself. Hey, we want tech tools. We want live chat. We want identity security. We want all these sort of things. So we now have the three pillars of this platform being the end user experience, the Office 365 integrated client portal, and the tech tools, chat, VCIO, all this sort of stuff. Now what you're seeing with these CX platforms is this ability to help fill the gap between the PSA and the user. So that's where our customer experience new category is playing. And we're giving you all the tools and the ability to really supercharge that whole experience. Interestingly, now we've calculated that um, over 2000 MSPs have picked ACX platform. And this is going to be the next big category in the market. For years and years and years, all you hear MSPs go on and on about is the PSA and RMM tools. If you go on Reddit, they just go on and on and on about those two tools. There is going to be a time where CX is going to be that next tool that they go on because this is where the game's going to be won. And I think that the game has already changed. The momentum's shifting and all the early adopters and innovators of the, of the market have already got on board. So it's a fascinating time, fascinating what's actually going on. But that's kind of the journey we've been on from internal product to commercializing, to listening, to evolving. And the market, you guys listening, are the ones, interestingly, that are really shaping where these platforms are going. So it's been a fascinating journey. Yeah, it's it's um it's just a wonderful to hear you talking about this. And it sounds like you you had the right uh the right idea, the right the right motivation, the right drive, you know, at the right time to, to get in with that. Because I guess for Envirosoft, your your um competitors as such, Jamie, would be people like Cloud Radial, would that be right? That Absolutely. kind of company? Yep, yeah. Cloud Radial. Yeah. Uh, Cloud Radial and Envirosoft probably the ones focusing more on the bigger platform, priced less than most VCIO tools, by the way. So think about it. Yeah. You're getting like a stack of stuff that's priced less than one tool. So, and then you've got help desk buttons, 
Uh, it's more sort of the end user experience pillar. If you think of the three pillars, end user experience, client portal, and the tech tools, they're probably more end user experience. And then you got Desk Director, which was, they really are the ones that were the first to commercialize it. I think we may have built our tech prior to them, but they were the first. And so they've sort of got probably a little bit of portal and mostly end user experience. So there's the four players now running around doing this. So yeah, it's fascinating to see how everyone's tackling the problem slightly differently. It is, it is. And which of the big vendors do you think is going to acquire someone first? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Got to get some scale first. But the, the, I think the, the horse has bolted, quite frankly. And, and the way we like to say it is the days of being a Nokia MSP, a Nokia analog MSP are gone. You need to be an iPhone digital MSP. This is the transition. You cannot be sitting there with a mouse pad or a sticker with your contact details on it and expecting customers to believe that that is the approach that is um, aligned to a modern consumer digital experience. These customers that of your clients are coming into their office on the bus, walking, listening on their phones to Spotify, checking the weather, checking social media, doing all this sort of stuff. And then when they come into the office, Hey, I've got a printer issue. John, how do I get a hold of them? Oh, you got a call or email. Are you kidding? Like, that's not the world that they're living in. We are supposed to be the technologists, yet the technology we use to interact with our customers is bordering facsimiles. Like, it's horrendous. And it does a complete disservice to productivity, communication, all these sort of things. Like with these apps, just so you know, like you can do things like push notifications and Office 365 is down. You, you send an alert, beautiful branded alert. You know, it, 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 the games change. It's fascinating, but it'll be interesting to see how quickly, you know, everybody will adopt it. Jamie, you have been so generous with your time. Thank you much, so much. I could actually talk to you for another two or three hours, um, despite the fact that as we're recording this, it's 11, 11 o'clock at night in the UK, and I know it's just eight in the morning for you in Australia. And I've got to go to bed, sadly, so we're going to have to <laughs> Sorry, end mate. things there. No, it's, it's genuinely fascinating. And with your permission, let's get you back on the podcast in, in 2022, and perhaps we can hone in on some 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 more of those specific areas and rather than just have a, have a big general chat as we have done today. Um, just tell us very briefly, give us the, the 30 second pitch on Envirosoft and tell us where we can get more information. Uh, for, firstly, go to Envirosoft, I N V A R O S O F T.com, uh, and you'll find out all about the platform there. Really, it's about filling in the last mile between the PSA and the user in your stack. So if you want to see what the, the new client portals look like that are Office 365 integrated, you'll, you'll, you want to have some tech tools around VCO, you want to reduce stack bloat, improve productivity, you want to improve communication, these sorts of things, you want to help grow and differentiate your services, then that's why you would be looking at a CX platform. It, it is fast turning into the must-have tool set um, for your stack. And the only one that is uh, customer facing. So go to envirosoft.com. Um, you can do a 14-day trial, free trial, get it going and look out for the new stuff that's coming. We've got a Microsoft Teams app that's launching soon. We've got push ticket updates. So when you do an update in your PSA, it'll pop up a push notification so that you can the user sees the update and can comment. And, and then imagine you get your, your feedback in those push notifications with smiley faces as well. So lots of exciting things coming in this space. Check us all out, all the vendors. And um, yeah, look forward to speaking to you. Coming up next week. Hi, my name is Kevin Coppins and I will be here on the show next week. And we'll be talking about how you can boil down all of these compliance regulations that are coming your client's way 
into fundamentals so you can help them make a difference to protect what matters most. We're also going to be talking about the risk of something called scatter work. Do you know what scatter work is? It's where you're constantly interrupted by either your staff or your clients, and you never really get to spend huge amounts of quality time focusing on getting proper things done in the business. We'll look at the risk of that next week, and I've got a number of suggestions for you to never be interrupted by scatter work again. We're also going to be talking about the holy trinity of monthly recurring revenue. There are three core things that you've got to have in place. I'll tell you what they are next week. See you on next week's show. Made in the UK for MSPs around the world. Paul Green's MSP Marketing Podcast.